Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Harry Adensasser. I'm your Jewish film podcaster. And joining me as always is Daniel Zana. Hi, everyone. My name is Daniel Zana. I'm a video editor, documentary filmmaker, and I'm really excited to have another video editor on the podcast today. Our guest today has worked in the film industry as an editor on a wide range of projects, such as Maya Zinstein's Till Kingdom Come, and quite a few projects with comedian Mike Birbiglia. His new feature documentary, Nathanism, is currently touring festivals now. Ilan Galod, welcome to Jews on Film. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to discuss the film Waltz with Bashir from 2008, directed by Ari Folman. Uh, you know, quite a few parallels and uh, differences between your film Nathanism and Waltz with Bashir that I'm really excited to dig into today. Um, but first, you know, as we do after we welcome our guests, we want to make sure that people understand, you know, get into your headspace a little bit. What made you pick Waltz with Bashir to talk about on Jews on Film today? Sure. Um, there are multiple reasons. Documentaries have been, you know, in the forefront of, of my mind, working on uh, several feature docs recently. And it seemed like your podcast hasn't tackled that many, if if any. Um, and there were a lot of thematic similarities that I found between Waltz with Bashir and my film that I thought would be interesting to discuss. Um, plus, you know, I'm originally from Israel, so I have a soft spot for for films from that part of the world. Um, and yeah, I, th I thought it would be an interesting discussion. Yeah, like you mentioned, this is the very first uh, documentary film that we're doing on Jews on Film. And, you know, for the reason of just no one recommended it, I think for a minute, we weren't sure with some of the old format how we were going to work it in. But especially the documentaries that you chose. And obviously there are so many like this that are just so ripe with, you know, big ideas and themes. And I am very excited to jump into them. You know, for those who haven't seen uh, your documentary or who aren't as familiar, do you mind just kind of explaining, you know, what you explore in that documentary and how it kind of ties with Waltz with Bashir and it's kind of exploration of memory in some ways? Sure. Uh, well, the elevator pitch for my film is basically, uh, the film is about an elderly Jewish outsider artist named Nathan Hilu, who I filmed for the last few years of his life. But what caught my attention about his story is that as a young man, he was one of the few Jewish American soldiers to guard the Nazis at the Nuremberg trials. And that, you know, stayed with him his entire life and features prominently in most of his artwork and yeah the film sort of deals with him as a storyteller dealing with his memories and both waltz with bashir and nathanism sort of deal with the memories of somebody who served in the military and how those can you know stay with you your entire life and sort of sort of shift uh as as you grow older and yeah i saw it it'd be an interesting comparison yeah it, it absolutely is and i really enjoyed that in uh in nathanism when i was watching it because i think for the first half hour i was very engaged like you know most people who clearly interact with nathan are with his stories and with his visual expression of them but I, you know, will give myself credit for having a kind of like creeping doubt of not necessarily that I challenged, you know, the the truth of his stories, because of course, there's so much truth there. And obviously, you know, it is confirmed in your movie that he did. He, he did work. You know, he was a uh, he was a guard there at that uh, at that prison kind of before the uh, the trial. But, you know, there's something about the detail and especially as it got more and more specific that you could see himself, you could see Nathan's own mind coming through. And obviously, you know, Walter Bashir, for those who haven't seen it in a minute, who aren't as familiar, I mean, that's a huge theme of that movie. It's about, you know, the, the director, when he is, you know, kind of embarking on the mission of, you know, telling over his story, his starting place is kind of, it's the opposite where he, he doesn't even know what his story is. It's about him right. uncovering it and kind mm -hmm. of pulling at these different threads. And it's just, it's fascinating the way that, 
that memory, he kind of comes to a kind of memory and he's very aware of what he's pulling from and what's true there. And this is all stuff that I'm excited to get into the conversation about, you know, what actually is true and what matters when it comes to accuracy versus truth. But, you know, it, it was just really fascinating. I want to tell you about the way that your documentary kind of unraveled that at the end while still affirming the value of you know, that artistic expression. So we don't have to get all the way into the details of that just yet. Although if you want to add some thoughts on what I'm saying, but just priming you guys and our uh, listeners for where I'm hoping to take this conversation after we, uh, when we really get into it. Yeah, that sounds sure. Good. Do you want to, um, you kind of teased it a little bit, Harry, but do you want to give folks a little bit, uh, you know, according to the great source, IMDB, they tell everyone what IMDB has to say about this movie. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the IMDb summary reads, an Israeli film director interviews fellow veterans of the 1982 invasion of Lebanon to reconstruct his own memories of his term of service in that conflict. Hey, all right. That's pretty good for for an IMDb summary. I feel like it's fairly complete. It doesn't really... No, I think it does a great job, actually. So... Yeah, like I, we were talking about this a little bit before, but kind of right. the, the first thing you'll notice you put on this movie, if you haven't seen it, is that it has a very fascinating animation style. And mm-hmm. I would say, like all animation, you know, words can only go so far to kind of tell you what you're really going to, I mean, really like any movie, but what you're going to see. But, you know, it's not it's not a very uh, straightforward documentary. We'll talk so hopefully a little bit actually about like the the narrative and the way that it kind of stream of consciousness unfolds and the visual, you know, the visual style that kind of overtakes it. But it is a uh, a much more interesting and layered documentary than I would say even that description. Although you're right, the content is kind of put all out there in the yeah. summary. Surface yeah. level details are there. Um, For sure. I'm wondering if it's an okay time to take a quick trip to the context corner. Let's um, do it. So a little bit of context about the film, you know, standing rule applies. Everyone is welcome in the context corner. But whilst with Bashir, 2008, directed by Ari Fulman, like we said, um, and like you mentioned, Harry, you know, uh, Ari Fulman served in in the the Lebanon War and is is retracing his steps. And so we talked about just a second ago how it's like an animated movie. Um, I was talking to Ilan a little bit before. We were both under the impression initially that this was a rotoscoped film because it kind of has that like early two thousands look, similar to films like Waking Life and Scanner Darkly. Um, uh, but it's not the case. This was shot actually. Go ahead. What is what is rotoscoping for those uh, who are yes. familiar? Yes, absolutely. So um, the the way that I will explain rotoscoping is take you back in the Wayback Machine when I used to use After Effects and I used to take a PVC pipe in the backyard and I would hold it and then I would animate on a lightsaber frame by frame. So it's basically painting over every single frame with something else to give the illusion of some, you know. So for, for these other films, they would, you know, film actors portraying something and then they would animate over it little by little so this was a little bit different because they used they did a similar thing um but they shot the entire movie um you know in in waltz with bashir's case they filmed the entire movie as a 90 minute film they really edited it, it down substantially to get it very tight then they drew storyboards and then they did animatics which are like animated storyboards and then from there they did uh, they used Flash, Adobe Flash, which is no longer a rest in peace, Flash. We love you. Um, but then they, they, you know, there's a, a really great documentary about it. I love the behind the scenes stuff. Sorry, Elon, I'm geeking out as an editor. You know, we have a tendency to do that. Um, but they, they, they redid everything with this amazing style, and it gives it kind of this not so like stiff, cartoony style, but it each like you know whether it's like the dogs running down the street in that iconic opening like they have this sort of fluidity and kind of like this motion when they're walking and all of that is thanks to this sort of unique style um and so yeah a lot went into it according to the documentary it was like a smaller scrappy team kind of a lower budget relative to other films and it went on to to gross i think 11 million dollars against a 1 million dollar budget and it did pretty well um in a lot of festivals so Overall, you know, certainly seeing yeah, believe, the, the behind the scenes. I believe it premiered at Cannes. Yeah, yeah. They had the choice of like premiering at the Berlin Festival and the Cannes Film Festival. And then so Ari Fulman like asked a ton of f- filmmakers and then they were like, we're not going to go to the Berlin Film Festival. We got to go to Cannes. So, yeah. But that's a that's a good choice to be, you know, stuck between to have like, yeah. So I think that's kind of, I, I really dove deep into the, uh, you know, the 
animated piece because I really that really spoke to me. Um, Elon, as someone who has served um, and you know came from Israel and things like that, is there any context you want to add, like historical, about the the war, um, just so people are aware? I don't know that I'm the authority sure. about the Lebanon war since it was before my time. Yeah, no, for uh, sure. But I think just watching it, it felt very accurate to the the mindset of, you know, a young Israeli soldier. I mean, I think something that a lot of people don't get when they hear about these wars is the the soldiers are like you know 18 to 20 years old they're you know they're straight out of high school and it's yeah it's just an interesting mindset to to suddenly be in um and i think i think this film sort of captured that in a way that a lot of films don't yeah there's like several moments where i feel like these uh you know whether it's Ari uh, recalling his memories or his friends, which he meets up with, like, you know, either it's them or him just seeming so over their head and just like following orders, but just like not sure of, uh, of what's going on. And, you know, there's one scene in particular, that airport scene where he's kind of like, you know, marching through the airport and he's seeing all these different um, airplane logos and things like that. And suddenly like it dawns on him that like, there's so many like, graphical um like symbolic things that show up and it, it's it's very it seems like very iconic and i think a lot of it is thanks to the, the the method in which this film is you know portrayed i am teasing a little bit of the discussion topic so i want to like maybe pause and then we can come back to it because i'm i'm jumping at the bit here to get get into it so is it all right if we take a quick break and we'll come right back okay we'll be right back Welcome back to Jews on Film. We're here with Ilan Golod to discuss the film Waltz with Bashir. Harry, I'm going to toss the mic over to you. Awesome. So I kind of wanted to open this discussion talking about, you know, one of the big themes of the movie that we've already mentioned, obviously, which is memory and how fragile it is and how much that changes. You know, there, there's one quote in particular. There's an incredible sequence where um, Ari is talking to one of his friends and he explains to him this psychological experiment where, you know, they show these uh, these uh, a group of subjects. They show them pictures of themselves as a kid, but they've actually photoshopped one of the pictures and they don't tell them which it is or I don't even know if they tell them that they did that. And they ask the people to tell them about the stories of the days depicted in the pictures. And he said, like, eight out of 10 people told the story, you know, from the fake picture as if they were there because our memories are so fickle and they, you know, they jump to conclusions to kind of explain things that don't make sense. They remembered an experience they never had. Memory is dynamic. It's alive. If we suddenly find some details missing, our memory helps us out by filling in the gaps with things that never happened. That's such a central theme to the way that this movie, you know, even by the end of it, obviously, we've kind of recounted a lot of these stories and we've heard a lot about, you know, the experiences of these soldiers in the war. But I don't think the movie is even trying to definitively tell you what is real, what was kind of manufactured, what was coped, you know, where that comes from. Right. The, the line in that scene that I really wanted to highlight is when he says, you know, memory is dynamic. It's alive. You know, it really is growing. And. There's an interesting tension there, I think, with the concept of a documentary film in particular, which I know documentary generally is kind of looked to as opposed to, you know, fictionalized narrative stories as being this kind of objective reality of truth. You know, this kind of showing, you know, what's actually happening in front of the screen, people talking to you honestly. You're not getting someone playing a character. They're really, you know, the, the movie at least is purporting to have these people tell themselves. So. I kind of wanted to open this up to you, you know, especially Ilana, someone who, you know, has made his own documentary and has worked in the space. Like where, how do, how do you kind of grapple with that tension between the way that this, you know, the way that memory and human subjects who are often the ones participating in documentary kind of fits in with that mission to tell sort of objective truth. And we could start here and kind of develop this, you know, in any direction that uh, that's interesting to you. Yeah. I mean, I think both with my film and working on other films, Personally, my philosophy is like, I don't know that a documentary can achieve objective truth. Um, I think achieving the 
personal truth of a character is is more of the goal of of a documentary um so yeah i mean that's it's definitely been in a discussion in many edit suites that i've been in with directors and i feel like as long as we're portraying the character's truth faithfully i think that's that's the benchmark rather than you know yeah i think documentary and journalism are aren't exactly the same right um, yeah i mean i think uh you know having worked on reality tv before i can certainly say that like you know this concept of like documentary uh being you know 100% objective is you know by nature the fact that you are, are editing it you're you're deciding what to put in and what to take out to support like you were saying Elon like the overall what is the goal of the piece is it to depict these people as the protagonist or as the antagonist or to kind of leave viewers a little bit unsure you know you can add music you can add reaction shots out of context to kind of really heighten the tension or make sure that everything's cool but that's all really you know the editor they say is like the second director you know who is able to craft that story it's it's um it's tricky what sequence you're showing things in there's a lot you can do with it um i think with regards to waltz with bashir they do you know it's the way that the film is is constructed is is very interesting because we're getting flashbacks of ari's life we're getting you know these conversations that he's having with people in a certain order and and things are being opened up in a, in a certain way but uh yeah it is kind of interesting how the the it's kind of like a flower like it blossoms and like by the end you sort of see a little bit more of the full picture at the beginning you're getting little twinkles and little tastes of, of what's going on there's also like repetition in there you know of certain scenes and certain um thematic things that we'll see but yeah i mean ju just to to circle back to reality tv i i personally have not had much experience editing reality tv but i you're lucky still have a vivid, <laughs> still have a vivid memory of you know seeing a a job uh you know a job call for an editor for reality tv which listed must have experience in constructed reality. Mm, that's an interesting term. Uh yeah. which which just made me laugh and I think it it tells you tells you something about about the job description. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It, it, everything you guys are saying opens a really interesting uh, conversation on just truth that can be conveyed in any kind of story. You know, we've spoken about this with like with other stories that are depicting either the Holocaust or wars that you're inherently narrativizing and shaping something that, you know, the world which doesn't fit into those structures. And I think the best documentaries like the two that, you know, we're discussing here are the ones that are aware of that fact. And like you're explaining are conscious of we know what we're telling you. So we're going to try to achieve something that's probably not accurate truth the way that, like you said, journalism might, but the way but the way that a story only a story can. Another reason that I picked this film, which felt connected to, to Nathanism is they're both very reflexive films that are conscious of the process of making a film and you know mm. don't don't try to hide that from from the viewer and i think it's it's part of the story of of the film is that the relationship between filmmaker and subject whether it's whether the filmmaker is the subject it's, it's an interesting uh question yeah. I mean, your decision to like put yourself in the movie, kind of like whether you want to call that a pulling an Ari Fullman or pulling a Morgan Spurlock or how, whatever, you know, whatever. I think that was an interesting choice. I mean, certainly Nathan, if, if you weren't in the movie, Nathan would make aware of the fact that you're in the movie because he constantly is telling you, Hey, Elon, put that in your movie. I love that. I love that. He's kind of giving you those editing suggestions throughout. And I think certainly, you know, while Ari's not directly like winking at the camera, like, hey, we're in a movie, like the fact that he's 
putting himself in the conversation, sitting next to the person in the field in the Netherlands and versus the, like doing the talking heads. He, d- he does a little bit of both. Yeah, Harry. And but even, I was just going to say, even at the beginning, when he has that first conversation about the opening sequence, he's telling his friend about the dream he's, you know, he's sure. this recurring dream he's having. You know, his friend suggests to him, he's like, why don't you work it out through your movie? Isn't that right. what you do oh. with movies? You work out these kind mm-hmm. of unconscious thoughts. So they prime you for what's going to happen, you know, even in that early yeah, scene. Yeah, I mean, I, I love one of the lines in that first conversation uh, the his friend says and how long was it before they began showing up in your dreams 20 years have you tried anything like what therapy a shrink shiatsu anything nothing i'm reaching out to you but why me i'm just a filmmaker can films be therapeutic and that sort of primes primes the whole film yeah do you feel like um that Nathan was able to, you know, I know that his drawings, it seems one one could surmise that like his therapy was like, of, you know, re- rehearsing the stories, telling the stories, drawing the stories. Was he able to like get some therapy through like telling his story to you and having it like um, recorded for, for history and, and, and presented as a documentary? Uh, perhaps. I mean, I think, you know, I spent four years filming him and I can't say that getting the stories out, you know, led to some recognizable catharsis, mm-hmm. but I definitely found him to be at his calmest, at his, you know, just most con- being content with himself while while drawing that gave him peace in a sense. So yeah. I think... Yeah, it's it's hard to say, but sure, it was definitely a, a positive force in his life. Yeah, it seemed very like meditative. Like he he was sort of, you know, draw drawing as he was talking to you, and kind of like at least the way that you cut it together, it seemed like he was just like constantly drawing and constantly telling you stories. Like that's you know, I mean, that's my I takeaway. I visited him on average once a week, and I I never never was there and he wasn't trying wow yeah cool i want to circle back on just this this big theme that we've been developing about uh you know the truth and accuracy and kind of the Mm -hmm. lack thereof i guess inherent to these stories and you know i I mentioned this to you daniel before we started recording but you know shout out to my uh english curriculum in high school because i was introduced to the book the things they carried which is a book that you know for those who are unfamiliar i mean personally it's one that i've kind of referenced a lot in regards to a lot of these war stories but you know, he really outlines explicitly the author of that book, this debate over, you know, story truth versus, you know, historical truth and kind of what that means. And that, you know, he says, you know, he says sometimes, you know, story truth can actually be more true to what's happening to what's, you know, being experienced than even, you know, what he calls the happening truth kind of thing. And I think that's something that we absolutely see in this movie where, you know, like I said, not all of the stories are verifiable. And even a lot of them sometimes feel conflicting and confusing. But you know, putting them in the mind, in the mouths of these, you know, these characters or the, these people, these real people who were, you know, 19 years old at the time and very disoriented. And that would almost be a common theme of a lot of the stories that are actually in the movie is, you know, just how disoriented they are and how much I think there were like two or three stories where people are told to just shoot into the, you know, into the outside and just not question it. And there definitely can be some truth to those stories because that's something that, you know, can happen in the army. But there's also something clearly just, you know, it's, it's a lot more of these people asking, like questioning what's going on than actually quite understanding um, what their their, mis- their missions are. But I wanted to also uh, transition that into a little bit of a Jewish discussion, you know, lest our listeners forget this is Jews on film. We love to work in these Jewish themes. And I wanted to consider the way that, you know, truth, story, lessons are kind of transmitted, right? Because these stories like are what kind of resonate once, you know, the, once we become so far removed from our past. And as Jews, we have, you know, very deep connections to the past. So I wanted to start, you know, maybe a little conversation on the way that we recognize stories and the way that they're kind of transmitted in Judaism. You know, the one thing I'll suggest that kind of reminded me of this, you know, whole story true thing is there's um there are these rabbinical stories that are, you know, composed of, as part of the Midrash, it's called, which are these, you know, stories that are not necessarily in the kind of main core Torah texts, but are often employed by the by the commentators to, to you know, to give insight into a story. And 
you read some of them and some of them are so divorced from reality that they cannot make any sense. And some of them, you know, seem like they're legit. And, you know, I'll finish this rant just with there's a very famous, um, you know, explanation to Midrash or an approach really that's, you know, famously offered by uh, the Rambam where he just suggests, you know, anyone who believes all of Midrash at face value is a fool. Anyone who completely disregards them and says that none of them are true is also a fool because there's truth in there. And I'm not sure what he meant, but my interpretation, as you can imagine, is no matter what happened, no matter how historically accurate every detail was, there's always, you know, truth to it, you know, a, a parable, some sort of message that, you know, is resonant and being conveyed. So that's kind of my, you know, introduction and uh, relationship that I think, or an example really of, you know, the way that story truth exists in Judaism. But I uh, I want to hear from you if you have any other uh, similar comps or totally different directions you want to take this, uh, this very open prompt into and just, you know, pull this into the world of the movie a little bit. As you said, I mean, memory is is so core to to Jewish tradition. I mean, the whole the whole tradition of the Seder is built around memory and transmission of memory. Um and yeah, it's just I think Nathan in telling his stories also felt like he was doing a very a very Jewish, uh, Jewish mission in in a way. Um, you know, he often often said that you know his stories were important for Yiddishkeit, for just like like you know Jewishness. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I think Nathan, like you were saying, Nathan sees it as like a service to the greater people, whereas I feel like. Um, in the film, Ari is like doing this for himself to kind of like figure out his own mind. But in creating this movie is now also like a service to to the greater people, whether it's you want to know, you know, you want to watch a cool Israeli film. But like really, it's getting into the mind of a soldier and, and an understanding, you know, this is not like a historical film in a sense that like if you want to watch exactly what happened in this war, you're going to watch this movie and find out like this is really to get into the head of one person. And also the larger, you know, uh, character of like a soldier, like what is it like to be in a conflict when you're 19 years old? You don't you're way in over your head. You don't really know what you're doing um, and how that affects people like much later on in their life. I think, you know, you think about like other war movies like Full Metal Jacket, um, you know, things like that, where it's like, it just depicts the craziness of war and, and it allows people to kind of get, you know, again, like I said, you want to watch a Ken Burns documentary about Vietnam. That's a different thing. But, um, I think these movies kind of both, you know, inform people about the individual, uh, as they experience this conflict. Yeah. Yeah. And just to join together what the two of you just said, because I really think that that's a really cool answer for, you know, the, the storytelling in the Jewish tradition, because, you know, Ilan, you were talking about, you know, Passover, and that really is all about the story. But there's a version of that that could have just been like, let's all sit down at our Seder, you know, it wouldn't be four hours long, because we would just kind of read in the text what happened. And that would be, you know, the end of it, we would have that story preserved. But like you were talking about, Daniel, you know, so much of the theme of the of the Seder night of the Passover night is this kind of thing, you have to see yourself as if you left Egypt. So how mm -hmm. do we effectively convey that idea? And it's through telling these different stories, singing these different songs, opening, you know, some of these crazy midrashic ideas, as I was referencing earlier, like so much of it is finding different ways we can convey the experience of that to achieve something more so than just educating yourself on the accuracy. But, you know, like I was saying, like seeing yourself as if you're doing it, living it. And, you know, while, while we're talking about Waltz with Bashir, one of the tools that this movie uses, other than its kind of stream of consciousness style, is the animation that we spoke about in the beginning, which is very unorthodox for a documentary because it very, as if like you you were tempted to take this movie as historical accuracy, the second all of it is animated, that kind of tells your mind maybe, you know, you're, you're watching this through a layer. But I wanted to also uh, hear your thoughts on just the, you know, the animation of it all and kind of what that, and if that contributed to that or that made it more effective or uh, if, if maybe that was something that kind of got in the way of, you know, feeling some of the truth from these, uh, from these uh, actors, from these, or not actors, from these, you know, talking heads, I should say. I think animation both in Waltz with Bashir and in my film, it's 
it hints at a subjectivity to to the story. Um, my choice to use uh, some animation in my film to get us into Nathan's head, but at the same time, it's you know they were to recreate it with actors that would have a different a different vibe than than animation. The animation definitely like you know it also hints at unreliability of memory and it's yeah it's sorry I'm not not sure where where I was going with that. You're good. No, you're good. Stream I, of consciousness. That's right. Yeah. No, I think um, you know uh, for everyone playing Jews on film bingo at home. Every time we say, we talked about this before the recording, you know, take a shot or do whatever it is you're doing. Now. Take a sip from your water um, or or your coffee or whatever. But I, I, I do think that like what you were saying, Alon, like if it wasn't animated, I was literally texting Harry yesterday because, you know, Harry gets like live text updates as I'm watching my film. And I'm like, damn, this ending is crazy. And, you know, we, if this film wasn't animated, honestly, it would it could, you know, be just another war film where you have you know gory bloody stuff i i i want to give a special shout out um to uh tomer and asaf Hanuka. they're two artists who worked on the film uh they are you know now they're doing like uh graphic novels and new yorker covers and things like that uh, so they worked on the film they helped like create some of these iconic scenes like that large woman carrying um uh ari from you know in the boat and things like that it's such a surrealist style, some of it, and some of the the way that you see the RPG like going in slow motion, and and the way that they put the whole thing together. There's so many like fantastical over the top scenes. You know, the titular like waltz with Bashir, where we have um, Franco with his patchouli. He takes this mag gun and he's like running around shooting and almost like dancing with these bullets flying around. And you know, you, I I I think you could do that with film, but like. Granted, this is, you know, we said this is a low budget film. I think the animation adds to the surrealist quality of it. But then also, you know, when you're seeing towards the end, when they talk about the Sabra and Shatila massacres, you know, and, and you see like these, these, you know, dead bodies, these casualties of war, it, it doesn't, it softens things a little bit. It rounds the edges a little bit. And it's not as, um, it, I mean, it certainly is shocking and it's visceral, but like once towards the end, when you cut to the live action version of that, it's really when that sort of, oh, this is not just like a pretend thing. This really happened and like, it really like kicks in. So, um, yeah. And I think, you know, having the talking heads, but having them be animated, the whole thing, it just kind of, it adds a lot to it, but it also, it, it shelters or, or it protects the viewer from kind of the, the horrors of war somewhat having that singular moment where it cuts from animation to live action, you know, you could imagine a different universe of this film where they went back and forth between archival footage and animation. And I think that might've detracted from the, the power of the, of that ending of just cutting to live action at the at the in like the last thirty seconds of the film, just really is like a, a gut punch at the end, for yeah. sure. Yeah, and you say you know you you could imagine that. I, I definitely did take some time to imagine that because I think when you have that big reveal at the end, it, it certainly felt jarring, and I I recognized how it was so effective. It was almost like we spent you know an hour and a half in the psychologies of these people, you know, trying to piece together you know their past, but. Like you said, it was a punchline suggesting, no, this was the reality. And there were a lot of victims, you know, in this case, who were, you know, really traumatized from it. I think it had me questioning, you know, what if it looked a little bit different? And honestly, almost similar to the way Nathanism looks, where it's mostly like live action talking heads. But then as we get into some of the storytelling modes, you know, only then do we uh, go into the animated sphere. Because, you know, this movie, it's not just that their memories are being animated, which I actually found to be very effective. But even right. the conversations that the two characters are having, you know, they're, they're fully animated. And I think one of the things we lose while we go into this almost imaginative space, even in the conversations, is just the faces of the people. 
and it, mm. we we become totally removed from them. And this, and perhaps you know, the movie was was trying to pull us out of that. We're saying this is not about these people. It's about almost like the collective shared memory of the faceless soldier to a certain extent. Like this was a universal experience pieced together from all of them. But I think there were some reflections, and particularly in that last scene, I forget there was one person they were interviewing. He was like this like balder. He was this bald like guy like sitting. I for, forget what like is the kung uh, fu guy. Like that's uh, Frankel. Yeah, I think so. Or I truly? think it was him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it him? Right. It was someone where like I think there were a couple questions at the end, especially about the massacre that were oh, you know yeah. a little more hard hitting, a little mm-hmm. bit more you know. Because, you know, for those who don't know, just to give you a quick history lesson, which, uh, you know, maybe we're not uh, equipped to do. Sh- should I do that or should I encourage you about, to look like, it up? I mean, just I the look- whole Falange massacre. Like the- oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, when he, like, confronts him and he, like, he has, like, a hard time yeah. kind of. Exactly. Right, right. The point is the war, the, the this whole movie is really, it's not just kind of their stream of consciousness kind of going through some of the war, but it really builds to, you know, a lot of these characters and especially uh, Ari's, like, uh, a place surrounding this you know very infamous massacre that happened you know that wasn't uh you know perpetrated by the israeli forces but they were ultimately criticized you know at the time and for a long time after for not engaging and for you know in in some ways the movie almost has them culpable for you know lighting up the scene and kind of contributing in some ways so without getting into all of that i just think that sequence that's where i was really you know wanting for especially people who were a little bit more in touch with their memories from that moment maybe to get a little more of their faces a little bit more of you know, these real people, you know, reflecting on this. And I think at the beginning when we were just kind of looking at war very generally, maybe for the first hour of the movie, I was like, I I want the story truth of war. I want this, you know, very almost dreamlike forgotten pain that they were experiencing, confusion and all of that together. But I think when the movie turns to get to something a little bit more practical, when it focuses on one specific event, I think that's where the animation was almost doing its job too well, where, you know, if I was, and I don't need to rewrite this movie, but where I think a movie, if it did, you know, a little more live action there might, could have been, you know, differently effective and still conveyed possibly more truth to, you know, these characters and what happened. I mean, I do question just from a documentary practice point of view, I wonder whether he would have gotten as much access and as much openness from these people if if they had to be you know film, filmed and shown in in live action on screen um he's dealing obviously with some some very touchy subjects and you know it it's hard to say with his relationships with these people whether they would have agreed to that but it's it's a question in my mind whether animation also served as a as a way as like a shield to uh for these people to to stand behind yeah, yeah. i yeah. read somewhere that like uh the majority of the people depicted were kind of like as they looked in real life but there were a few people specifically i think they called out the person at the beginning when he talked about his dream with the 26 dogs that he had killed throughout his time and he had nightmares about all these dogs chasing him that person and one other person had sort of requested that their appearance be changed completely so the person we're seeing on screen i think that guy had like glasses and sort of bangs or whatever like that was a different uh you know maybe the same voice or different yeah, maybe a different actor and a different sort of look overall. So I think, like you're saying, Elon, having that animation uh, provides some sort of anonymity if they wanted it. Um, I wanted to jump back for one second, if that's okay, because we were talking about like historical truth and personal truth and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's there's this whole concept of like uh, towards the end when they're talking about the Sabra and Shatila massacres and like every every rung up the ladder it goes – like there's questioning of that truth. So like the soldier tells his captain, you know, they're leading these people in and they're and they're killing them en masse. Okay, well, did you see any of this? No, but the soldiers told me. Okay, so then he takes it one neck to the reporter and, and then or the reporter then takes it to this and he calls, you know, Ariel Sharon at like 1130 at night and ultimately he says, you know, did you see this? No, but the soldiers told me. Okay, great. And then that's kind of where they left it. But uh it is very interesting that this this is their truth and they're kind of trying to tell their truth, but then are being questioned on it. And ultimately, as a viewer, we don't really know if any action was taken. But I mean, historically speaking, the massacres occurred and, you know, not much was done on the Israeli side other than 
from what we understand from the movie, someone came up and drove up and said, okay, enough, everyone go home. So just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. See if any thoughts it's, on that. It's it's really interesting to me. It's because it's, they're trying to tell a story that, you know, and I don't know the history of this or where this is documented, but definitely from the perspective of these soldiers, they probably still don't have, you know, all of the truth to and all the details. You know, it's like you were saying, Elon, about having this unprecedented access. There are a lot of layers to the actual truth. So when, when you don't have that, you know, what, what kind of story can you tell there? And a lot of that story is inherently confusing. Like you're, like you're saying, Daniel, there's a lot of questions and people not believing, which is why, and that was the experience for these soldiers. But, you know, I think what this movie is conveying is that, this was a war that was fought by people like Sharon who had information and decision making that maybe, you know, were not that these soldiers were not privy to. And that's why that all they can do really is make sense with this. And that's why all they can suggest us or they can give us is this, you know, animated story, you know, personal anecdotal story version of this, because it's not that they're withholding, you know, like you're saying, a more historically accurate truth from us. It's just he doesn't have it. You know, he barely even has his own story. I mean, that's the whole concept of this movie is how much can he kind of pull together even his own memories. So, you know, I think asking so much more by the end of the movie might be difficult in this situation where, you know, so much more doesn't seem to have existed to these, you know, to the people who participated in the documentary. OK, well, this was a really terrific discussion about Waltz with Bashir and slash Nathanism. We we managed to talk a little bit about both. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and Harry's going to introduce some categories and we'll go through them. And then we'll wrap up by rating on the film on a scale of one to five Jewish stars. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on film. It's the moment we've all been waiting for Harry hit us with those categories. If you please. Sure. So we'll start off with uh, an easy one. And what was, well, maybe, what was <laughs> the most, yeah, maybe not so much in this case, but I'm eager to hear your thoughts, but just what was the most Jewish scene in the film when you were watching it? Granted, this film is in Hebrew and it takes place in Israel. So there's a lot. So no, <laughs> no pressure. Right. Like you can just say, oh, them being in Israel, you know, the, movie? the Israeli <laughs> army. Exactly. But, but that's, so that layer for sure works. But when you hone in on it, you know. Sure, sure, sure. I feel like we could almost yeah. say like the most Israeli scene because like, you know, I feel like there's like so much of it. Maybe this is like a, a technicality, whatever, like a weird, you know, loophole. But, you know, Jews love loopholes. Um, anyone who studied Gomorrah knows that. Um, so I might I might switch it and say like, uh, I don't know. OK, <laughs> I went on After this. All that. I, know. <laughs> I told you, man, this is a tough one. Like. It's so Jewish because it because inherently it's dealing with this, you know, Israeli conflict that's part of Israeli history. Um, it's all in Hebrew, like I said. So um, there's there's a Jewish I think there's a Jewish surface context to it. But I'm I mean, intrigued to just like where, if you had to like hone in on something, you know, there's a guy like, wearing tefillin at right, you know, minute right. 54. I could say like, you know, as we're at the airport, there is literally like person putting on to fill in and then Ari has like a, a fantasy about like his Jewish, uh, you know, burial because he wants to get back at his girlfriend. So maybe one of those two, maybe I'll do two I mean, half, like they're half scenes. They're not quite. So anyway, go ahead. I mean, for, for me, just hearing the, I mean, yes, it's all in Hebrew, but just the interactions between Ari and his friends just have a very both quintessentially Jewish and Israeli mm -hmm. dynamic to the the friendships and like you know talking to the guy in in the Netherlands about like how many years did you have to sell falafel to to afford this house? All this form falafel. From just selling falafel. Wow. Come, you'll see. Things like that. It just has a a, a very Jewish feel to it. It was like pretty amazing. We don't even have to clip it in now. That was perfect. Right? Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's I just I love these answers because it's interesting to me. I think it's a movie that takes its Israeliness, its Jewishness kind of for granted in a way that it doesn't 
point to it in so many scenes. Like like you said, Daniel, I definitely clocked the Tefillin scene and that was, oh, he's rapping. But this is a movie that it's not, it's not telling you know, you know an outside of Israeli audience, you know, here's like the Jewishness of this war because it's, it's taking that for granted. It's this is just our story, and it it almost doesn't point to any. I think there's plenty of stretches. There's plenty of Jewish themes that we've you know definitely uh, covered in terms of storytelling and conveying and tradition, but there's nothing. There, there wasn't much that was so explicit. Like I think like the two of you, I, there's definitely some guilt experienced by a lot of these characters. So you can kind of throw your Jewish lens over that, but um. But yeah, it was interesting to me how there wasn't something so pointed. To your tefillin uh, note, um, I you know I grew up in Israel, but in a very secular household, and I think I saw more people putting on tefillin during my army service oh, than I did in years growing up. I mean, I think one thing that's very interesting about the Israeli army that it is really a melting pot of all the the cultures within Israel that a lot of which I was not exposed to in in the town where I grew up and yeah it's it's I think uh, an interesting aspect to some of these scenes is that you see some of those culture clashes just a little bit. That, that's a really uh, that reminds me of now there was this scene where someone's in a tank and, you know, the, someone suggests like just shoot out the window or something. And he says, wouldn't it be better to pray? And he's like, OK, so pray too, and then and do shoot. that. Yeah. And it's probably something that I didn't clock because that's just something like because honestly, in my mind, I was like, they should be praying a little bit. But <laughs> I think that's something that obviously there's praying in other cultures and other religions and a lot of right. these war movies, because I think people say, you know, that's when you're in a foxhole, that's when, you know, everyone no becomes a believer. Yeah. Exactly. There are no atheists in a foxhole. So I think that's obviously a part of the war story, but I think the way it's like inserted in here is probably very true, especially to the Israeli war story, you know, to the Jewish Israeli uh, experience. So that's a, uh, that's a really good point. All right, Harry, the moment we've been waiting for, what is your most Jewish scene? Well, oh, I thought I was just saying, you know, I think I'll go oh, with oh. the tank. I'll oh, go the with tank. the praying in the tank. I oh, think okay. I had a throwaway earlier, you know, where I said something about the Jewish guilt. But I think the tank actually is a uh, I think it was in a tank, the praying line. I'm going to I'm going to stick with that and then uh, transition to, into a, us into a category, which so shockingly I had. Oh, do you want to add something to Jewish? No, I was just going to add a little sprinkle to Ilan's uh, comment about like oh, the, the conversations and the Israeliness of it all. Um, shout out to the little kid in the background for like one of the conversation who's like grabbing a knife and like walking off camera with like a, I think like just like the casual atmosphere of it. Like, I think you've kind of convinced me like they're sitting on the porch and they're just hanging out, smoking cigarettes. And like the kids are running around like the fields and things like that. Just, it's, it seemed very like Hafif, very chill, relaxed. Um, so yeah, I think that's like a very, uh, I wouldn't say it's like a Jewish thing. I think it's more specifically like an Israeli thing, like which is uh, which is what you call that. But I did I did enjoy like there's a lot of like visual gags throughout the movie being an animated film. I think there's, you know, to kind of lighten some of the heavier scenes, they add like little sprinkles of that in there. So, um, yeah. So sorry, Harry, go ahead. No, I was, I was just going to take us now to the second question, which I was remarking. I actually had a little bit of an easier time coming up with for this, okay. and I'll start us off. And that is the stretch of the pod. You know, where can you work something in? So um, for my stretch of the pod, I am going to suggest there's a recurring scene that we kind of see throughout the movie that we haven't even mentioned yet. But it's, you know, the one memory that Ari has coming into this movie and ultimately the movie unlocks some more, but is of himself kind of rising out of the water, you know, outside these like falling buildings in Lebanon, kind of close to where the massacre was. And he comes up naked. All of his friends are kind of naked walking out. And we see this visual, you know, a number of times as he's kind of walking out. And it's I see the, the gears turning. Here it comes. I'm excited. It's, it's so funny because I'm about to analyze this. And normally when we, you know, analyze like the a, a narrative film, like a fictional scene, it feels yeah. like I'm just kind of doing a, a, you know, a movie, you know, text read. But sure. because this is his story that he's telling over and over in the movie, I, I almost feel like I'm psychoanalyzing him, which is weird. And, you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever I say uh, should not be, you know, held up in a, in a court of law or whatever. <laughs> but what's interesting about that scene was it was very evocative of, uh, you know, the concept of immersing in a mikvah in a uh, ritual bath that a lot of, you know, that Jews do often to, you know, purify themselves. And often it's done kind of before some of the high holidays uh, where, you know, the idea is you're trying to get 
yourself a clean slate. You're washing everything off of you so that, you know, you can kind of move forward. And it's pretty telling to me that this is this one memory, which I can't imagine. I mean, it's possible there was a context where they were all bathing together, but it almost feels like this is a fabricated memory that he kind of have put in front of his, you know, war experiences to literally do just that, to immerse himself, purify himself of some of the darker memories of ultimately the culpability, which, you know, uh, I don't know if you might have mentioned it during the break, Daniel, but you're talking about how it's possible that there is some negotiation with the way that the army and the soldiers ultimately are responsible for some of the massacre, you know, even though they weren't directly involved. So it almost feels like this recurring memory is him kind of washing himself clean, immersing in the spiritual mikvah, so to speak, to, you know, rid himself of this pain. And what the movie ultimately achieves is him, you know, opening, inviting it back in. But at least for many years, you know, he was purifying himself. So that was kind of my uh, my stretch read of that recurring scene. I like it a lot. I'll buy it. I, I feel like it doesn't doesn't sound like much of a stretch, actually. <laughs> I did Dang. say that in the break. I said it. I could throw this into a most Jewish scene, but it's kind of somewhere in between because, right? Like, like I should, I should add, you know, that idea of using water to purify and cleanse. It's a very Jewish thing, but it's also, you know, across many cultures, that is a symbol of water. So sure. this one might, might have, might fall into the category of stretch of the pods that actually were intended by the right. filmmaker. And I don't know if we said it before, but there's certainly uh, it's worth mentioning again. The uh, we were talking about Harry before this idea of the flares. Like later on in, in the film, we discover that um, you know Ari's role in the in the massacre wasn't actually like shooting anybody or anything like that. But essentially, we discover that his team that he was sitting on top of a bunch of buildings and shooting flares constantly throughout the night. So while not directly involved in the conflict. Uh, he was helping to provide like light and and visibility for the the Christian phalangist uh, uh, soldiers to be able to to do what they needed to do. Um, and I think one of his friends, I may be misquoting it, but they like essentially compared what he you know called him out on it and was saying that like you know there was some Nazi comparison, and I forget exactly what his wording was, but. He was not, you know, ridding Ari of of any blame or anything like that. He was like, you were somewhat of an accomplice. And Ari, I think, had a hard time kind of reckoning his memory and his involvement with what actually happened. So, yeah. And now he's shedding light again, in a way. Ooh, I love it. Is that your stretch or is that just something you're adding? Because that's pretty good. That's pretty that's, solid. Yeah, that's good. I think this is a, like a stretch on a stretch. Like we're we're adding like a lot of good seasoning to your very juicy stretch, Harry. So call it going, everybody. I, I really like that though. The idea that this movie is you know the the flares that's exposing you know what happened to the rest of the world and you know almost like a direct kind of you know the concept of teshuva we talk about. You know, just like the best way to uh, you know atone for what you did is to kind of you know be in the same situation, flip it, act different, and you know that there's some nice mirroring there. So. I, uh, I'm really into that one too. Well, and that gave us a little bit of a preview of your insights and things like that. But now I want to ask you: Do you have like a, a stretch of of the, you know, of the movie? I think the shedding light is, you know, we'll count it. That works. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. So, Daniel, do you have any stretches for us? Amazing. Um, <laughs> um, you know, like Ronnie Dayag, one of the stories, uh, like, uh, you know, this is like a swimming, this guy, uh, you know, one of his friends, he's telling a story about um, his entire troop, like they all got killed except for him. He's hiding behind a rock. And then all of a sudden he sees a bunch of soldiers come up. He essentially waits there till dark. And then he goes into the water and swims and swims and swims until he gets so tired. And, uh, you know, he eventually like sees light and then he swims back to it and then he is rescued. So I had like maybe like a, you know, Yona situation, like a, you know, getting lost in the water or we could go Joseph getting separated from his brothers. But this idea of being like separated from your kin and then coming back and having this sort of like nice homecoming, um, very stretchy. This one, I thought like, I'm sure that Ari Fullman was not thinking about the Yona story and the Yosef story when, but like, you know, there's so many rich stories being told here. And this one was like, Oh, what's one that we haven't talked about that I can hastily put together a stretch for. <laughs> no, but I do feel like there's something to it. Right. Like I think the way that each style of story is told is so interesting and 
you know, whether it's, we're talking to like a therapist about the hippodrome and like the, the horses, there's just like so many good stories to, to, you know, both told and then seen. Um, so if we haven't already encouraged everyone to go check out the movies we're discussing, both Nathanism and Walt with Bashir, please go do so. I mean, I have an alternate stretch, which Ooh, I, good. I'm, I'm, I'm sure is not uh, Ari Fullman's intention. Um, and I'm, I would assume that the character who lives in the Netherlands actually does live in the Netherlands, but I think in the context of this film, I think it's interesting to think of, you know, the the war crimes tribunal in The Hague, you mm-hmm. know, just in in connection to everything this film deals with. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's just a a thought that sprung to my mind. Oh, nice. There's the there's this question of kind of the accountability that's being taken in this movie, the way that they start by just confronting their past, but how much do they, you know, actually uh, engage with it? And I'm going to use this to transition us to the final question, Please. which is, you know, is this movie good for the Jews? Because, you know, just to prime everyone, like I, you know, obviously looking into this, this is a story of telling of this awful massacre that happened during the Lebanon war where the Israeli army was you know, surrounding this town where the massacre encountered and they didn't actually, you know, engage in the uh, in the murdering of a lot of these Palestinians that were killed uh, by this, uh, you know, this Christian sect. But at the same time, a lot of the, you know, the world and has kind of challenged this idea of how culpable were they? They obviously like there's people say they could have intervened and what did they do with the flares and what happened there? And this movie is really navigating that. And I think those questions make this movie very dicey in terms of that question of good for the Jews. Absolutely. I think it's almost impossible not to bring your politics into this story. And as I was, you know, yeah. combing through some reviews of this movie, this this movie straddles both ends of the spectrum of this I, is I think amazing... the answer is depends who you ask. <laughs> right. Then that's always been true, but it might be the most true for this movie sure. in particular, because it really does kind of play both sides. And, you know, just to weigh in for is this good for the Jews? I mean, I thought this was a very powerful wrestling with culpability. I think these characters, you know, people who accuse this movie of being overly sympathetic to, you know, the Israeli army, which, you know, according to a lot of the world are, you know, the perpetrators and a lot of this stuff. And, you know, people suggesting that, you know, it was too sympathetic to them without exposing, you know, their their guilt. And I didn't get that read, A, because of, you know, obviously there is a lot focused on the actual victims and there's a lot of time spent uh, on them towards the end of the movie. but. I think the movie throughout is is challenging them. And I think if it's sympathetic to anyone, it's certainly sympathetic to these individual soldiers that were kind of part of the machinations and didn't have all the answers. And, you know, we're, we're figuring this out. But I actually think it is fairly critical of, you know, a very complicated situation in a way that I actually think ultimately, even though it's somewhat critical of the Israeli army, sheds positively in the way that, you know, this art can be created in Israel that is really reflective of a challenging moment and raise legitimate questions. So it's my convoluted way of saying, depends who you ask, but I think from, <laughs> but I think from my perspective, and actually I, I really enjoyed getting to see this side of, you know, a complicated situation that frankly, I, I really do not know enough about, but I thought it was interesting. And, you know, on the, on the surface level, the characters are great. I loved seeing all these very Jewish Israeli guys and it was uh it was a fun watch. So I would say a little more good for the Jews, but uh, like everyone said, depends who you ask. Uh, anyone else have any other thoughts on that? Considering especially how divided Israel is currently politically. I mean, I think different parts of the populace would have very different reads of this film. Uh, I think, you know, dealing with the accountability could be considered good for the Jews in some in some sense. But, you know, I think there are parts of the population who don't want to be confronted with uh, with those stories. So, they might not be as as sympathetic to this this film yeah yeah i think um you know i will uh i'll start out by reading something from uh you know some research i did 
you know, it says several writers have described the film as part of the Israeli shooting and crying tradition, where soldiers express remorse about their actions but do not do anything concrete to remedy the situation. The filmmaker Ari Fullman has disputed this uh, claim, or not claim, but characterization. Um, you know, I think it's uh, like like everyone has said so far. It's it's a complicated answer. I think it certainly puts me into the mindset of a soldier, um, and makes me want to do a little bit more research about the history of it because you know having done some cursory internet research it's a little bit unclear i mean we're no, no one on this call was there so we're never going to know and we can watch a movie and even if we do talk to someone who was there we're not really going to know what happened because it's it's colored by their experience were they inside the tents were they or inside the camp were they outside the camp were they there? so it's it's hard to know um so i think it's you know it's a good it's a good exploration of the mind of a soldier but overall i think you know it's a complicated event um with you know not such a positive outcome uh for the israeli soldiers you know a lot like you said harry um i think generally speaking it's regarded as something that israelis could have done more for but you know you know given the circumstances did not intervene um so i'm kind of like meh for the jews in terms of like the 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 claw the larger group but like on an individual level for this particular jew i thought it was like a good a good way to like help process his his feelings and thoughts about it and his comrades so i don't know if that's an acceptable uh, answer but i feel like that's kind of long and it short it depends and so you know sure like, but like it, that very, works and yeah yeah this yeah. is like a very you know well-regarded movie we mentioned that it opened up in Cannes and it was widely circulated and i think it was nominated for best foreign film at the mm -hmm. oscars i don't think it won but it's also it's always cool when like an israeli film can really have that reach and can open you know uh, an important dialogue so i uh i'm gonna stick with good for the jews but only by a little and Okay. Depending who you talk to. With that, let's uh, let's get to numbers. So we're going to rank this movie on a scale of one to five Jewish stars, taking into account the content, the themes, the cast and crew, all the above. It's going to be on a scale of one to five Jewish stars. And a reminder to you, Elon, and to the listeners that it's not on the quality of the movie. It's on how Jewish it is. So on a scale of one to five stars of Jewishness, you know, where would you rate this film? Uh, Daniel, do you want to get us started on numbers? Well, uh, yeah, I think... You know, like we we said, you know, throughout the the film, you know, Israeli uh, creators, uh, Israeli stars. Um, it's filmed in Hebrew, or it's you know, it's in, in Hebrew. It takes place in Israel. Deals with the IDF and and the conflict there. And so, all that being said, um, I'm trying to think about like what it didn't show in order to like figure out if I should just kind of like doing a Who Wants to Be a Millionaire style, where I'm like talking you through my answer here, but. Uh, you know, I feel like this was a very solidly Jewish film. Um, there was even tefillin, like we mentioned. There was signs of kosher pizzas. So, I don't know. And in honor of the, the film's Hebrew language, I'm going to say Arba Bareva. You know, four and a half. So, Elon, how about Wait, yourself? Was, I think that was well, a four and a quarter. That was four and a quarter. Oh, but Arba, slicha, slicha. Arba Vachetzi. <laughs> okay, her rating Just Shelley. Case Arba yeah, okay. Thanks. Perfect. I'm an embarrassment. I had a Hebrew school education and this is what I should have to show for it. So Elon, what about yourself? I feel like I would give it a four, I mean, or an alba. Um it respect obviously, respect. you know, has has all of those elements that you speak of, but yeah, I feel like there's always room for more Jewishness. So, uh, so it's hard to to give it a five. So, yeah, I'm going to stick with four. Okay, a little bit room to grow on. I like that. Harry, how about yourself? I am. I'm Be thinking about Akasha. it. Three mm, ratings. Three ratings. Maybe the number. Well, okay. I hope I don't go too too many decimal points. Um, no, I I think. I'm not going to go as high as the two of you. I actually think that this movie more so than it's, 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 it's funny. Cause it's, it's very, it's, you can't divorce it from the Jewishness of the history of it. You know, if we were watching the story of, you know, a war from a different country or whatever, like you cannot deny that. And we cannot deny, you know, the, you know, the Jewishness of like the Israeli, 
you know, conflict of it all. Like this is definitely telling what was an Israeli story, which by extension, you know, according to uh, to to me, I think would be a Jewish story, you know, whatever. Um, but I think that the way that this movie explores memory and, you know, isolation in the war and just some of the trauma that's carried is so universal and is telling a story that's more so like if, you know, we, we used to play the blockbuster game. If you were putting this, what section would you put this in? Like, I would put this in the war section. Like, this is, you know, a treatise on the way that this war kind of infected these people. That certainly was made by a whole Jew, a cast of, you know, Jewish people. And it was, you know, it clearly is telling a more Jewish story. But I don't know, like, I, I thought it was interesting when we were talking about most Jewish scene. I think there's a lot of implied context about, you know, who's being represented. But the movie isn't directly engaging always with their Jewishness so much as their humanity, you know, to be as uh, pretentious as possible. So I think that would kind of put me closer to a, is it Shalosh V'chetzi, Shalosha V'chetzi? I don't want to get this wrong in front of uh, our Israeli guest. Or... Shalosh V'chetzi sounds good. Shalosh V'chetzi, yeah. Shalosh V'chetzi. So I think I'm going to come in a little bit lower than than the two of you at a 3.5. So we go 3.5 for 4.5. But uh, but yeah, that's where we uh, that's where we rank Waltz with Bashir. Yeah, is this like a new rule on Jews on film that whenever we have Israeli speaking guests, we have to speak Hebrew for our ratings? <laughs> is this like canon now? <laughs> I think you make the rules, Daniel. So if you want well, it to be, you can. I don't do know. That. I mean, I don't know. It has to happen three times before it's like codified in our bylaws our, of, of exactly. the podcast. Ilan, Ilan, thank you so much for being on Jews on Film uh, to discuss both Waltz with Bashir and Nathanism. Uh, I wanted to give you a little bit of an opportunity to tell our viewers, you know, a little bit more about the film, if you'd like, and then where they can check it out. Sure. Um, Nathanism is still towards the beginning of its trajectory. Uh, we had our world premiere a few months ago at Hot Docs in Toronto. Then we played in Israel at the Aviv Festival, where it received an award for best uh, Holocaust filmmaking by Yad Vashem. Um, and we just had our US premiere at a festival in San Francisco and we're making our way throughout the US. So there's a good chance that the film is coming to a city near you. And I'm also excited to share that Early next year, we've been invited to screen the film in the courtroom in Nuremberg, which is wow. sort of a, a beautiful full circle moment for Nathan's story. Wow, that's that's incredible. You know, I'm sure I'm sure he's, you know, so proud of, to see his story like, you know, being told and being shared to so many people. So go look up. Oh, that's that's incredible. And we'll put a link to the show notes or we'll put a link in the show notes for where they can find out more information about the film. Yeah. Um, Harry, anything to add? It is Friday. We'd like to check in with Harry sometimes and see if he's got anything cooking, but if not, that's fine too. Just, just making a salad this week. Okay. That's all. That's fine. Should be a good one. Yeah. yeah you know. All right. Well, um, awesome. Thanks everyone for listening. Make sure to follow us on all the social medias. Uh, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, not on LinkedIn, but all the other places where you can find Jews on Film, we're there. Uh, if you ha have any suggestions for films or feedback, you can email us at jewsonfilmpod at gmail.com. And thanks so much for listening. Shabbat Shalom and Leach out. Bye. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel and Harry edited this episode. Follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.